In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, a podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. And tonight, we have a special night. It is Groundhog Day. Again, and I got you, babe, my my friend Robert, uh, with me, and we're going to talk about Groundhog Day on this, the 62nd episode of the Actual Anarchy podcast. You can find the show notes page at actualanarchy.com slash 62, and we are going to also do a version of the Last Nighters, so in a few minutes, we're going to do a little mini-intro and call it Last Nighters. Uh, number five is what will be. Uh, too bad we're not, not doing short circuit. You know, Johnny Five is alive. Uh, do I have you with me, Robert? Who? Yeah, that's me. I'm still here fun to do a show on the actual day that we're talking about, so that's fun. It's cute. It is cute, much like this movie um, that we can get into in just a few minutes here, but uh, let's check in with you. I think the last time uh, we did Ghost in the Shell, we didn't do a whole lot of housekeeping. We had a guest on, and he was great. Uh, we had a lot of fun having a, a very lengthy conversation with him, and, and then we cut a lot of that down into a, a somewhat semi-coherent show um, on the Ghost in the Shell. But let's talk about some of the projects you've got going on. I know you've recently launched your merchandise line uh, and on Amazon, and on, was it Tee Public? I've got links to that on the actual Anarchy site in the sidebar. You want to talk about that for just a moment? I can talk about it for just a moment. So, Trepshot.com is still in work in progress. Um, as soon as that is up, it will be, there will be a webcomic that will be probably bi-weekly, and that hopefully people will get on there and read that and enjoy that. There will be blog posts to go along with it. But then there will also be merchandise for sale, um, shirts, like liberty themed shirts and other other shirts too but if you enjoy my work and you want to support me and what I do then that would be the place to buy that stuff but in the meantime you can go to tpublic.com and it's great every design you put up on tpublic it instantly goes to like 18 different products so you upload about i don't know i think i got like 10 designs up there right now maybe less but that means you have you know nearly 200 products available to purchase and then um yeah i've only got one design up on Amazon right now, but I'll have more shortly. And uh, yeah, so things are moving along. Uh, there are places to support me if you want to do that. There's also Patreon uh, for Reed Rothbard, but then there will also be a, a Patreon for Trubster and then like 
cryptocurrency type donations if you want to do something like that. Trying to just make it as easy as possible for people to support the work that they enjoy or the ideas that they support and that sort of thing. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, and thank you for that update. Um, I have a quick update for everyone as well. We launched the uh, new Libertarian Union site, and we just did the second State of the Libertarian Union talk show with several of the other members of that. And so that's up on the Libertarian Union uh, YouTube page and libertarianunion.com. So that's really fun. I've also launched a new Facebook page called Mises Quotes. And what that does is it has a basically a database of over a thousand Ludwig von Mises quotes. And I've got this automated uh, software that is loading, I believe, five of them a day. And it's trying to like spread them out through the day a little bit. And they're all tied back to either the free version or the bookstore version of the source of the quote um, at the Mises Institute. So either uh, the Mises.org link or their bookstore link. And it's just a way of sharing those quotes because I think they're uh, predominantly phenomenal and giving them a little bit of, you know, free free publicity just because I've learned so much from them. So that's on Facebook, and that is Mises Quotes. Just go ahead and do a search for that and do a like, and then those will show up in your feed uh, occasionally. And I know they just changed the algorithm, so I'm not sure if it'll do it as much as it would have um, prior. But, you know, get a, get a little liberty message out there, a little pro-liberty kind of stuff. Doesn't hurt. Oh, I just want to repeat, um, in case I wasn't clear, it's T-Public, and then you just search for Trubster, T-R-U-B-B-S-T-E-R, and you'll find all my designs. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got some notes to do our episode. And so why don't we kick it off into the old uh, normie mode and go to last nighters if you're ready for that, Robert. I'm ready. All right. So before we do that, just uh, show notes for actual anarchy is dot com slash 62. And now we're going to initiate normie mode. Hello and welcome to the Last Nighters. We're going to talk about Groundhog Day on this Groundhog Day 2018. And this will come out a few days after, but uh, happy Groundhog Day. Uh, This is Daniel and Robert, the Last Nighters, and this will be episode five. You can find the show notes for this at lastnighters.com slash five. So let's kick this thing off. Uh, Let's say hello to Robert, and then we'll kick it off with the uh, Google description, as as we are wont to do. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Should be a good episode. All right, all right, all right. So let's get into this. Groundhog Day came out 25 years ago. 1993 drama fantasy, hour and 42 minutes, 8 out of 10 on IMDb, 72% Metacritic, and 96% on the Rotten Tomatoes, with 87% of Google users liking it, recommending it, and giving it the old thumbs up there. Uh, The description reads as thus, Phil Connors, I think, is that it? Or Phil... Yeah, Connors? Is that it? Yep. Yeah, Phil Connors, played by Bill Murray, a weatherman, is out to cover the annual emergence of the groundhog from its hole. Phrasing. He gets caught in a blizzard that he didn't predict and finds himself trapped in a time warp. Doing the time warp. He is doomed to relive the same day over and over again until he gets it right. Uh, came out February 12, 1993, directed by Harold Ramis, featuring the Sonny and Cher song, I Got You, Babe. And that is the Google description. Uh, what is your... Initial take on that, Robert. Yes, very short and generic. Um, one interesting thing about this movie that I thought of seeing it the second time around was that there was no explanation for why he was stuck in this time warp. I, other than, obviously, you know, as he turns into, like, being going from a jerk to a nice person, there was no kind of magical, you know, interlude. There was no, like, little fairy, like you get in Scrooge. Because the Scrooge plot in this movie are basically the same thing. It's jerk becomes nice person, learns how to be a nice guy, gets the girl in the end. 
But in Scrooge, there's actually a supernatural element to explain what's actually going on and why he's able to see these things. And what. But in Groundhog Day, there's none of that. It's just he's stuck in this cycle of hell. And it leads to some interesting scenes where he's kind of pondering, what is going on here? Am I a god? <laughs> Am I stuck and trapped in some sort of cycle of hell? Am I, you know, having to, am I being punished for something? It, it, it's, it, it's an interesting narrative choice that uh, Ramus did, or the author, the, the writer and the director, to, uh, to leave it completely unexplained as to why uh, this is happening, or at least how it's happening, so to put it that way. Yeah, and it, it basically is a remake of Scrooge, like you were saying, um, and it does lack that supernatural, you know, being that has come and set this in motion. Uh, and in a similar fashion, Bill Murray gets to, like, play through all of these different stages of grief, if you will, you know, these different personalities and different reactions to it. You know, he goes through these different moods because um, initially, you know, he's like, what the hell's going on? And then he's like, oh, well, I, I can do this to pick up on women and learn everything I, I ever wanted to learn and, you know, go around saving people. Um, and then after a while, he's like, crap, you know, I hate this. I want to die. And he tried to commit suicide several times. Uh, there's one uh, scene where he's in the uh, cafe and he's like, I've been stabbed, shocked, frozen, jumped off a bridge, jumped off a car, hit by a truck. You know, he lists all the ways he's died. And he always reemerges the next morning at 6 a.m. with the alarm clock playing, I got you, babe. Indeed. And yeah, he goes through all the different, you know, he tries to make the best of it. Because at first he's in denial. He doesn't know what's going on. He thinks people are just, you know, maybe he's didn't, yesterday didn't really happen. Who knows? Or whatever. And then, and then he finally settles into the reality of a situation. And he, yeah, he, he realizes that his, his actions have no consequences. Or essentially they'll be wiped away the next day. And he starts doing all kinds of terrible things. But in, you know, fairly Bill Murray-ish way. I mean, he doesn't just start murdering people and whatever. But he is an absolute jerk to everybody. And like Daniel said, he, he gets information on, you know, the good-looking girls. And then he uses that to his advantage the next day. All kinds of like sneaky little underhanded things that you could use to turn the situation to your advantage. Like at one point he robs an armored car and, you know, these would be horrifically immoral things for anybody to do, but there's no consequences. He gets swiped away the next day. Um, so, Daniel, did you have any kind of issue with his character robbing people, almost killing them, you know, all these, you know, uh, committing fraud, you know, tricking people with this gained knowledge um he acts quite immorally but none of his actions have any kind of permanent repercussions so at the end of the day what 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 harm is there yeah that's a very good point and when i saw that part and it was i think the third day of the you know repetitive day thing where he goes to the bar with those guys and, and gets they get really drunk and then they try to drive and he he ends up driving them and he uh smashes over a mailbox which or you know one of the blue mailbox uh usps things and i thought that was kind of funny and then the cops start chasing him and he's like doing the you boys like Mexico type stuff with them, you know, like from Super Troopers, where he's going on and on about what would you do if you had no consequences? You know, we could do anything, anything we want. So he starts driving around crazy, uh, saying stuff like, you know, clean your room, set, stand up straight, take it like a man. And he's basically evoking Jordan Peterson in his new book, uh, The 12, uh, 12 Rules for uh creating chaos or creating order out of chaos or something like that. Did you get that uh, when you were watching it, like the Jordan Peterson stuff there? I didn't get any Jordan Peterson link, uh, no, but I'm glad you picked up on it. Yeah, I think it's his new book. It's the 12 Rules for Living or something like that. It's uh, He's doing all the promotion right now for it. Supposedly it's being 
well reviewed? Yeah, I've I've got it. I've started reading it, and I've I've put a little blurb up on the side about it. Um, but when Bill Murray was basically going, you know, consequence free, you know, you don't have to do this stuff to clean your room, and Jordan Peterson's famous for saying that, you know, sort yourself out, that kind of thing. And uh, then he starts driving on the railroad tracks, and I wanted to bring that up because you and I have a shared story uh, regarding <laughs> regarding an incident like that uh, back when we were uh, youngins, and I, I want to pass it off to you, and maybe we can uh, retell that in you know a short minute or two here. Well, Daniel's talking about this incident where uh, my cousin lived near the tracks, just across the tracks. There's a there's a set of railroad tracks that kind of divide this small town between east and west. And one night, I guess, what is it? We were in high school or thereabouts, and we had this video camera. And for some reason, we were out filming, making little movies or whatever. We were talking, and we come across this car stalled on the tracks that she must have turned and then driven onto the tracks and then couldn't drive back off of them. And we had spent, right as we were about to, right as we found this car, we were like bad-mouthing the cops in town, as you do. I mean... Who doesn't? I do right now, 10 times worse than I ever did before. But we didn't know that this evidence this evidence would be called, you know, to be appropriated by the cops for any potential case that was going to be put against this, this lady who had stranded herself on the tracks. So we find this lady on the tracks. We go and we call because, you know, you have to call it in. You don't want this train to come along and smash this car. And... Of course, then along comes a cop. And we're sitting there at the tracks with this lady who is obviously inebriated and the cop, and we're filming the whole thing, sort of. So a couple days later, or maybe it's the next day, who knows, we get a phone call saying, hey, we need that tape for evidence for this case. And so we try and strangle up or try to rustle up like an extra VCR, because this is back in the days of VHS tapes. And we're trying to edit out us talking crap about cops. And we just want to get this little, you know, part that they would need for the evidence. And we ended up, you know, just having a cut little part. I don't know how long it was, maybe 10, 15 minutes. But then we gave it to the cop. And all the cop did was complain that we didn't show her face enough or something like that. Like it wasn't good enough evidence for him. Anyway, I'm glad it wasn't good evidence at this point. But, I mean, I'm glad the train didn't come along and smash her. Uh, but I didn't want anything further to, bad to happen to her. I mean, she was obviously in She made a bad choice. I don't know how you make that turn to go onto those tracks. If she was trying to kill herself, maybe. I don't know. But uh, do you remember much more about that? Yeah, I remember I we tried. Along, but... Yeah, I think we tried talking to her, and she was saying really weird, random stuff like, so all the kids can buy some fruit. I remember that line for some reason. Yeah, yeah, right. Yep, that's what that's from. Yeah. And, you know, that probably happened around the same time that this movie had come out. So perhaps this is a instance of real life imitating art. Maybe she saw it. Uh, maybe she saw Groundhog Day and was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to drive on the tracks and I'm not going to live by their rules anymore. You know, and uh, you make the choices and you live with them, which is what Bill Murray says. And then when the cop catches up to him, bringing this back to the movie, uh, he tries to order food from the cops because he's, you know, He's going to wake up the next morning listening to Sonny and Cher, so he doesn't care. And so he's like, oh, yeah, I'll have a, a double burger and some fries and, like, a milkshake. And then the, the really drunk guy is like, is it too early for flapjacks? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, the crazy. humor in this movie really holds up. Of course, most the humor in most Bill Murray movies, I would say, still holds up. He just has a certain kind of sardonic take and dry wit sort of thing that doesn't age, that ages really, really well. 
Yeah, yeah. So let's let's start introducing our categories. So one of them is um, number of tears jerked. And for me, there's a certain amount of emotion that we've alluded to previously. That Bill Murray is able to go through the whole gamut, the whole Kubler Ross, you know, stages of the grief thing, and display all these different personalities. And he's a great jerk. You know, he starts out the movie very full of himself, very sarcastic and mean to people. He pulls the celebrity card early and often. You know, the prima donna is what Chris Elliott calls him all the time. And he's just great at that. But then he can sort of get away with it just because, like you were saying, he has that ability to pull off this sarcastic snark but still be humorous about it. And it's a very amazing attribute for someone to have because, you know, I, I've had my share of being uh, um, sarcastic and it usually doesn't come off very well. Just ask my wife. Yes, yes. Bill Murray can get away with it, or at least he does in the movies. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, the most normal human beings can't get away with it nearly as well as he can. Yeah, so that was my long-winded way of saying, um, you know, he, he does make this character arc. He goes through this entire, you know, he does learn how to be a better person. And it's, you know, to get the girl in the end. So for me, you know, I, I did get some heartstrings pulled and... The humor really did hold up. Like in the open, we said this is a 25-year-old movie. I think it plays pretty well today still. Oh, definitely. And that's indicative of the scores. I mean, Rotten Tomatoes didn't exist back when this movie came out, nor did Google's or any of that other stuff. So this is people watching it or reviewing it way after the fact. Yeah, um, totally holds up. Um, As far as the number of tears jerked for me, um, I didn't really start getting teary-eyed and choked up until he decides to use his powers for good. When he becomes a superhero and he saves the kid falling out of the tree, even though it's a thankless thing, he saves the kid and the kid just runs off. And he's like, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow, kid, or whatever. He has made the churn and, you know, he's decided that he's going to maybe be a force for good in the world. Um, he saves the kid. He saves the guy choking. Um, the love story, even though that was the center of the movie, uh, didn't really work as well for me. The, um, the, he goes quickly, really quickly, almost as if there's some missing scenes from being this, you know, sarcastic, I don't care about this town or anything that's happening jerk to I'm in love with this lady and I got to be with her and I got to figure everything out about her in order to woo her. Uh, For me that I never got the scene where she did a thing and he was just, he looked at her and saw her in a new light and he made the decision that maybe this is the girl for him. I never got that scene. So for me, the whole romance didn't quite work out. I still appreciated it, and I did like the way he ended up wooing her, and I liked the idea that there was that one perfect day, and he still and that still wasn't right, and he had to do it again. Um, I, I appreciated that. That was really good. But for me, it was more about the turn of him turning into a, a superhero than it was the romance for the tears jerked. And I would say this was about a eh, – this is like a, a four – a four on the level of tears jerked. There are some good tears, but this wasn't nearly, it's, it's more of a comedy. I mean, what do you want? It's not, it's not so much of a, a tear jerker type thing. Right. Well, you know, I'll tell you what got me was when the old man dies in the hospital yes. and he's determined to prevent that. And he tries and he tries and he tries and, you know, it's a little montage and he just can't do it. And that, that's yeah. the part that really got me. So that's going to bump it up for me, maybe to a six or a seven. We'll settle on a 6.5 for tears jerk for me based on the old man. And, and I don't think he ever figured out the old man. No, he and, didn't. The old man dies. Yeah. And the nurse is just like, yeah, sometimes people just die. Can't do anything to stop it. Yeah, that right. was that was a, an emotional thing for me too. Maybe maybe I'll put it up to like a five. All right, revised scores, revised scores. So our next category, um, we're still sort of developing these as we go along, but one of them 
I, I have in mind is like the internal consistency. So the logic as they lay it out in the film, uh, how well do they stick to it? Because there are some, you know, time bending elements here. And as you had said earlier, they don't really explain why or how these things are happening. So maybe this isn't the best category to really go through. So um, I don't know. Do you have something else in mind to discuss or, or is that enough of a jumping off point for does it spark anything for you? Well, I could nitpick. Um, but it would just be on the cases, basis of nitpicking. Um, you would have to assume that he spends the exact same amount of time every morning going to the exact same places in order for um, the insurance salesman to see him at the exact same time every time. And that just seems improbable. But I really appreciated what they did with it. That was really fun. I thought probably the funniest line of the movie was uh, <laughs> when, when Bill... Uh, <laughs> It's still cracking me up right now when he um, when he's accosted by him yet another time. And he the best way to get rid of this guy is to, like, embrace him and ask him <laughs> if he can call in sick, <laughs> turning the table, be like, oh, now you're uncomfortable. Oh, so good. Excellent tactic. Shift the uh, the level of comfort to the other person. Right. Now, was that intended to, like, give him the, um, hey, I'm interested in you vibe to, like, scare him off? Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, SJWs would say it's homophobic or something, but I thought it was really funny. It wasn't necessarily homophobic, I didn't think. It was more, here's this person I just met after, you know, how many years, and all of a sudden he's grabbing me. Clearly there's something wrong with his brain. I don't want to hang out with this guy. Right, right. You know, there were a lot of callbacks in this in this movie. So when um, Ned Ryerson first bumps into him on the first day, uh, he's like, do you remember me? It's Ned, you know, Ned Ryerson. Bing! Uh, he ends up using that when he's picking up women initially, like on, you know, day three or four, where he's like realizing he can get away with whatever he wants. Um, so then he starts getting information from like one of the girls in the restaurant. And then the next day he purposefully bumps into her and implants memories a la Ghost in the Shell style, where he's like... Hey, we sat in history class next to each other. I asked you out to the prom, and uh, you know, but I was a lot shorter then. And he was just convincing enough to have her actually believe that maybe that was possible. And then, of course, he used that to his advantage. Um, and I thought that was kind of a like very underhanded, obviously. But this was early on in the in the process, and, and I guess it's like actually over eight years of, of repeated days here, um, where he was still kind of exercising his power. You know, this is kind of before the. Uh, He's a god, and he's tried to kill himself a bunch of ways, and he knows everything by now. Um, so I don't know. I just thought that was interesting because uh, then he he later on you know, robs the armored car, and then he uses the money to buy like this sports car and dress like Clint Eastwood and bring this other girl to the movies and tell her to call him Bronco. You know? And did you catch the little um, the joke in that when he's ordering the ticket for the movie? I didn't catch the joke. I don't remember, but I didn't remember that that was the one out of place scene that didn't fit with any of the other scenes. I mean, I understand that he's like living it up and he's spending this money on the, the prostitute or in a car and an outfit or whatever. But nowhere else is it mentioned, oh, I've always liked cowboys and Clint Eastwood and dressing up as whatever and whatever. That just seemed like out of left field, a bizarre thing that was thrown in for no reason. But what was the joke? So when he orders the ticket, he goes up to the window and he says, uh, one adult and, well, two adults, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Oh, man. So what category do you think that we should do next? Like how well the movie was made? Because, yeah, let's do that. How, the craft of the movie. Let's go into that. Um, my take on it is it was very well done. Like things were pretty precise. Um, you know, the, the comedy is there. The, the script is there. 
I'm pretty sure that you know per Bill Murray movies, he had plenty of of leash to, with which to work. And uh, I, I read somewhere that you know when he has the um, groundhog driving the truck, the groundhog actually bit him twice, <laughs> and he, and he you know continued to uh, to make the scene. The guy's a professional. Well, we're dealing with uh, Harold Ramis, who um, I believe directed Ghostbusters, right? With Aykroyd writing. And then most of it was just improv. So, yeah, I can imagine another team up of those two guys again, just letting Bill be Bill. I don't know how much was improv versus how much was written, but I imagine a, a large amount of his improv made it to the screen. Um, other than what I've already said, as far as um, inconsistencies and little scenes that didn't do much for me, uh, yeah, I would, I would agree that this is a fairly well-made movie. So good job, Mr. Ramis. Rest in peace. I'd give it an eight as far as, uh, you know, craft. I mean, this isn't a movie that relies on any kind of special effects or anything. There's some fakey-looking fake snow, but what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you got to fake the snow, you know, you do what you can. Yep. So. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it was well done. I'll give it a seven there. You know, nothing uh, super amazing as far as the craft, but but competently well done and still holds up to this day. Like there are some movies that you watch that are 25 years old and you're like, wow, that doesn't look like very good at all. Um, I'm reminded of uh, Night of the Living Dead, the remake. That was like 1990 maybe. And it, it did not age well. But this one aged pretty well. And I, I think a lot of it maybe has to do with the production design. It's supposed to look like a small town and the people are wearing pretty conservative style clothing, like, you know, shirts and ties and jackets and hats and things like that. So it could be almost any time period, any decade, really. Yeah, the only thing that really gives it away is, I guess, the cars, the typical 80s cars, maybe early 90s cars, but mostly 80s cars. Yeah. Well, let's do a, a catch-all because I've got a, a series of notes. Um, but why don't we start with your notes? I know you had three, and and uh, then we can jump into mine. Well, I, we've already done mine. Um, just the fraud that the character does. Um, there's one scene that's kind of date rapey where he brings her back to his house and he's using, I mean, if that had happened today, he'd be part of the Me Too movement where she would write some kind of a tell-all and how he kept asking her to stay and how she kept saying no, she wanted to leave or that she'd better leave. Um, reminded me kind of the Aziz Ansari thing. Yep, I have that note as well. Uh, but okay. my, my note says, at least she verbalizes a no in this one. Yes. Yeah, she actually says no, but he does. He takes no. He doesn't take no for an answer multiple times. But he doesn't exactly force himself on her. I mean, sort of. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly uh, probably more aggressiveness, and I don't mean like violent aggression, but I mean like he's trying b beyond what's probably acceptable today. Right. Well, I mean, clearly. Yeah. I mean, you don't even have to say no now, and and it's supposed to be like intimated <laughs> somehow. Yeah, he's supposed to be a mind reader. He's supposed to just understand what exactly even though she even if she's giving off positive vibes and positive nonverbal communication you're supposed to mind read whether or not she wants to or not right which reminds me of uh dave Chappelle's very prescient skit um on the love contract like that's relevant today and that's over 10 years ago yeah indeed all right what else you got well i wanted to talk about bill murray you know he, he goes through this arc and he finally is resigned to the fact that he's there so then he starts learning Right. Not just about everything that happens in the town and about everyone and, and using it to his advantage, but to actually improve himself. You know, he learns how to play the piano. He learns uh, how to um, speak Italian and how to speak French and, and, re and learns the poetry because and this is one of my favorite lines when he's talking with uh, the Andy McDowell character. He's like, you know, trying to get some background on her. And she says that she was an art history major or something and, and, and studied 19th century French poetry. And he says, that's a waste of time. <laughs> 
Well, he's not wrong. <laughs> uh, but later on, you know, he, of course, learns it and then recites it to her. Um, and, and this is when he's doing the, you know, trying to do whatever he can to, uh, uh, you know, I guess he's realized that he really likes her and, and, and wants to be with her. So then he's doing whatever he can to anticipate or learn everything uh, so that he can say and do all the perfect and right things um, for her. And she sniffs it out after a while. You know? Right. At the, during the date rapey scene, she's like, oh, my God, you planned all this, didn't you? And, of course, he says no, but, of course, he did. In fact, he had spent probably years planning it out. And then it isn't until he realizes that, no, he just, he just has to improve himself and good things will come, I guess. That's never said, but that's what he does. He just kind of, there's the final big day that we get in the movie where she finally decides to, you know, he's the guy. And I still think it's too fast. It's still the first day for her, but she sees that he's this amazing guy and that he knows everybody in town and everybody in town loves him. And all of a sudden she's on board with him, um, almost as if she has been privy to all the things that has happened in the movie. But of course she hasn't. Um, but if you did suspend that disbelief, I, I, I think it works fairly well. Yeah, I'll agree with you there. Um, you know, the, the final day where he's kind of given up trying and he's just, he is, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, it is still that same day for her, even though it's been eight or nine years for him. So, yeah, for her to know this guy, I guess she didn't know him that well. Like at the very beginning, I guess she's a new producer for him. But all she's seen of him is like him as a jerk. Right. Right. Though part of what he's seen displayed to her being a jerk is on that Groundhog Day, right? I mean, there's he does the uh, weather and then they travel the next day to Poxitani or how, however you say it. And so she has like half a day with him. And in the uh, first couple of go arounds, you know, he is a jerk in Puxatani, but by the end, you know, he's nice in Puxatani. He's bringing Chris Elliott coffee and asking him about, you know, if he has kids and he's carrying the camera for him. So I think we got to realize that that her experience with him, a lot of what's colored in the beginning actually gets rewritten later on. Yes, but still to fall in love with somebody in one day is a bit of a stretch for me. Even if you see that this person is like super Mr. Popular and super talented guy, I mean, she goes from not barely knowing him to spending all her money on the bachelor auction. It, it just seemed like, I mean, yeah, if she had been watching the movie, then yeah. <laughs> Seen all the things that he did, saving the people's lives, trying to save the old homeless guy, saving the kid, you know, all that stuff. What she did get was all the people coming up to him and, you know, thanking him and whatever and being big fans and him being very magnanimous about it, like... Oh, yeah, they've been hitting on me all night. I don't know what that's about. I mean, that's those are funny lines. He's very nonchalant about all these wonderful things he's doing for everybody. He's not trying to take any kind of, like, crazy credit or something, which, as an audience, we can appreciate, especially right. since he's been there for years and years and years of living this one day. Of course, he's going to be able to get it right at some point eventually. But, yeah. Um, but, you know, I don't want to focus too much on it. I mean, the love story didn't work for me too much, and I think that's probably the movie's weakest point. I think the movie's strongest point is the evolution of the main character. And if you're telling a story, having a strong arc for a main character, molto bene, good job, you did a great job movie, and anything extra is kind of gravy. I don't think that the movie, even if he hadn't gotten together with the, the love interest, it's still a complete movie. I mean, they throw that in there for the feels, probably, and that's, that was one of his goals. But I think it's even a str- maybe even a stronger movie if he doesn't get the girl and still realizes, hey, I've become a complete person, and I like me now, and I like these people, and they're worth loving, and, you know, that kind of thing. Right, get a little love so, in your heart. Like, 
it's Scrooge all over again. <laughs> yeah, it's Scrooge. It's Scrooge. And, and the, the, the love story in Scrooge was the weak part of that movie, too. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think the, the love story in this one is kind of the MacGuffin to keep things moving, to give him a goal that he's working towards. And right. he, he, you know, he does set about with this infinite amount of time to, you know, try to achieve that goal. And in the process, he becomes a bit of a renaissance man. And, and one of the scenes was uh, he's in this old folks home with these people watching Jeopardy. And he's like reciting all the answers. Some of them, even before Trebek says the question. And uh, that reminded me of uh, being at, at your place um, with your old man. And he would basically do that same thing when we had watched Jeopardy with him. <laughs> well, the guy knows a few things. It's true. Where the household that I grew up in is very much a trivia level household. Um, a lot of useless knowledge bouncing around in the old buckets. Um, yeah, I can imagine only being able to watch one episode of one episode. This is, you know, there's no, this is 1993. There's no DVR. There's no Netflix. There's no nothing. You, you can only watch what was on the TV. You would quickly, I think, find other things to do, like learn the piano or learn foreign languages or learn everything about everybody in town because these are the only people you can talk to, the only things you can do. So, yeah, I mean... But it's still, the, the fact that he chose to, you know, he took the time to save people, that does show, you know, the content of his character. Because he didn't have to. Because these people, you know, they're going to be alive again the next day, right? And what's the point of saving some kid if he's just going to be alive the next day anyway? But it showed the content of his character. So, uh, yeah, good job, movie. Yeah, good job, movie. And, and I just want to throw a couple more scenes in there that I really enjoyed. And I know we're not really following our categories right now but i you know this is kind of a fun conversation and we got a little bit of time we're about 40 uh, 40 minutes in um is when he's uh, in the diner and he's realized that he can eat whatever he wants it doesn't matter anymore <laughs> so he's got this banquet in front of him and she says things like to him do you think someone of an advancing age like yourself <laughs> should be eating like this and you know not worrying about love handles and cholesterol and and uh, he's like smoking and whatever and he just doesn't care anymore i thought that was pretty funny and, and oh yeah yeah, I, this movie played with what would happen if a character really did have to live out every day. Because everything he eats that day, you know, just goes right back as if you didn't. So, yeah, you would probably pig out a good portion of the time, I would think. Why not? you got to get some pleasure in somehow. Yeah, now having to repeat this um, so many times. Now, it, it, it is one day, and it's one small town, and he is trapped, right, because he has tried to escape. Or, or not escape, you know, he's tried various things. Um, eventually, you'd run out of everything, right? You'll, you'll have done everything, um, eaten every type of food available, talked to every person available. And I don't know if it'd be eight years of re- repetition, but, you know, if, if it was like a thousand years of repetition, I mean, yeah, you'd get pretty, uh, pretty tired of it, you know? Yeah, is this an argument against uh, immortality? Or, I don't know. I think, yeah, you would definitely get super tired of it, um, especially if you're trapped in one little spot. Although the fact that he was able to milk so much out of one little area, I mean, what could a human being accomplish if they did live for, you know, a really super long time? Would we be all super achievers? Would it, or would it or, you know, I, I, I tend to think that our decisions matter more, you know, the less time you have, of course, you know, each, each decision is more, most precious. I don't really have a point. Well, I think this goes back to, to maybe something we've talked about, not on the show, but offline. And that is, you know, we're getting a little older ourselves. And so we're starting to feel that pressure to accomplish something. And oh, yeah. so I think that, you know, maybe plays into some of your thinking here. For sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is, I know we were just talking about this earlier before the show, was that this movie really showed somebody who was doing the same thing over and over again until you got it right. I mean, that is essentially the plot of the movie. Somebody who does something over and over and over again 
And what is the definition of insanity or whatever, right? Doing the same thing over and over and again the same way, expecting a different result. So he really actually does do all kinds of different things um, until he finally finally achieves it. So, and I lost my point. Can you jump in here? Yeah, well, I mean, he essentially becomes a, an expert level on everything that's happening there and on like little vanity projects. And, you know, he started out being very vain and there was a callback to Scrooge in that where um, I think this is at the scene where he has the plethora of food in front of him. But Andy McDowell says, you know, you're so vain. And he says something along the lines of, I don't even have a mirror. I haven't looked in a mirror in months. And of course, in Scrooge, uh, during the board meeting, he pulls out a drawer to look at himself in a mirror. So I thought that was pretty funny. And I, I think he did that intentionally or threw in this line uh, to call back to that. So you're making an argument for a, um, a Murrayverse, that these movies are all connected? I think Bill Murray is the same character. He's just Bill Murray, man. <laughs> he is. I know. You can't really point to a Bill Murray movie where he's, like, radically different. Lost in Translation, that one. He's, he's very subdued. He's subdued, but I wouldn't say he's super different. <laughs> Definitely not a character actor. I mean, he is a character. He is. You know what you're going to get when you have Bill Murray. Yeah. And Bill Murray, I think, is the famous, is he, he's the famous guy where you can't actually get a hold of him. You have to leave a voicemail if you want him to do a movie, and then he'll check it and get back to you if he's interested. Like, he doesn't have an agent or anything like that. He's no, a, certainly a one-of-a-kind kind of guy. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know much about that. I just know that I enjoy his stuff, and uh, I know one of, our, um, one of our buddies really likes him as well. So, yeah, Bill Murray, good stuff. So Groundhog Day, um, let's get into our overall rating and review. So final summary and what number are you going to give this one? All right. So this movie hit, checked almost all the right boxes. Uh, still funny, which is amazing after all this time. But um, I mean, I can't watch a Bill Murray movie without laughing at some point. if He's allowed to be himself. Um, it just didn't, it wasn't quite perfect for me, but that's perfectly fine. Um, so I would give this movie uh, 8.2. 8.2 on the Robert scale. 8.2 on the Robert scale. Well, I think uh, I'm going to agree with you. It, it, it does hold up very strongly. Um, you know, Bill Murray's going to be the same character, but he also is so varied. Like, he has a lot of range. You know, he can play that sardonic jerk, but he can also be that sweet puppy and throw in all the sarcastic and funny lines and get away with them. And so it's nice to see him playing in that sandbox where he can just kind of do whatever and, and do the ad lib stuff. And uh, it just makes me like want to watch more of his stuff. So for that, I'm going to go with a 9.0. Uh, Annie McDowell, you know, she's, she's fun and, and whatever, but she gets totally overshadowed by Bill Murray. And uh, uh, so, yeah, 9.0 for me on this episode of Last Nighters. So now this movie, um, this movie reminded me of a recent series of news articles. Apparently, like millennials, like social justice millennials are going back and watching older movies and being completely offended. I think this is a movie that would definitely not quite pass the PC police, like many of the movies in the 80s, like many. And even though this isn't a, this is a 90s movie, it still kind of feels like an 80s movie. But this is like one of those movies where the characters act like, you know, people do unapologetically. And uh, yeah, wouldn't quite live up or wouldn't quite exist if it was if they were trying to make this movie today i think there would be some definite some complaints about certain certain scenes and certain attitudes the characters took and that sort of thing um it's it's from a different era and it's it's fun to see um people get upset about these normal movies but anyway all right well that's a good point um but that's all the time we have for the last night or so thank you guys for joining us you can find this episode at lastnighters.com slash five and so i say good night from last night 
All right, we'll continue on a little bit with uh, Actual Anarchy, and this is, again, at actualanarchy.com slash 62. Uh, so, Robert, to your point with the, uh, the SJW-ness, yeah, I think that, um, is that actually a thing? Like, people are going back and watching these old things and, and getting upset with people present day? That sounds like something that makes sense that they would do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think if you just Google, like, snowflakes react to old movies, uh, you'll see some articles. In fact, I'll do that right now. Why not? All right. Well, it, it reminds me, I'll riff on this for just a minute, because uh, in this uh, environment of social justice warriorness and social media combining into a perfect storm of anything you've done or said in recorded history now can be dredged up uh, so long as there's some attention on you for whatever reason. An example is there was some guy who was uh, playing in the, what was the, the most recent tennis thing is like the Australian Open, maybe. And it was the last American still in the in the running. And I guess he lost in the semifinal. But he kind of come out of nowhere. Like he wasn't expected to do this well. And so all of a sudden, you know, he's the last American still in the tournament. And it's unexpected. And then people start looking at his Twitter. And like four years ago, he said something that was maybe a little right wing or a little Tea Party-ish or, you know, something. And people were getting all up in arms calling him a racist Hitler uh, Nazi guy because of this. And it just really pointed out to me that you got to be careful now, man, about anything you say or put out there uh, because people will weaponize that against you and not for legitimate reasons and not for, um, I mean, certainly there are people who've done bad things and and that should be um, dealt with. But these are things that are innocuous that they're using in a political way to damage people. And it's going around the whole, you know, even concept of due process, right? They're being tried in the, in the court of public opinion and uh, people are being fired from jobs, not being hired from things or, uh, you know, by companies as a result of this. Uh, James Damore is a, a interesting example from the Google thing. He got fired for uh, putting a memo um, about diversity that was, I haven't read the whole thing, but from what I understand, it had, um, you know, researched information and, and basically boiled it down to there are not as many women because they just prefer not to do this job. And <laughs> irony of ironies, uh, the CEO and someone else of YouTube and, and Google, like two people were in a panel and they essentially said the same things that the guy said in the memo. And I think in the same conference, they said they were satisfied with the decision to fire the guy for writing the memo. So, what are they going to do to themselves now that they have said essentially the same types of things that he wrote about? Absolutely nothing. Because <laughs> social justice snowflakes, no, no hypocrisy like their own hypocrisy. Um, but yeah, there's also some famous instances of, I mean, you're talking about like tweets and like the Twitterati and the PC police. Um, there's been like some just here in the local area, uh, like members of the Seattle Mariners, who have gotten in trouble and gotten fired for the tweets that they've put out. But here I found the article, uh, at least one of the articles. It's the Daily Mail. Um, it says, Dr. No, millennials watching classic Bond movies for the first time blast sexist and racist plots online and describe Sean Connery's 007 as basically a rapist. <laughs> so that's good time. Yeah, it is interesting to... to go back and watch those movies with the um, with the present mindset climate uh, you know with you now like and, and that's one of the things that's so interesting for us in, in doing what we do for the show because a lot of the movies we do are, are movies we saw before our conversion to libertarianism and now we see them in a new light new perspective meanwhile SJW types who have never seen these things before but are now raised in this environment of everything's oppression right. uh, 
see these things that, you know, they see it in a different way than was originally intended and, and that we saw it before and how we would see it now. <laughs> so, you know, it, it really comes down to like, it truly is a very subjective thing, um, but they're not, and I'm going to generalize here, but they're not applying like any logic or consistency to their viewing. Like they are doing it, I think, based on feels and feels alone and feels with a Z, um, you know, not even like really thinking, just more reacting. And, and as a result of, I want to say, a, a dose of propaganda being propagandized and a dose of, I think, in a general way, how people have been raised in this generation. And I, there's probably a whole lot to unpack with that. And I, I know I don't, we, have time, we don't have time to get into it. But what I'm doing with my kids is we're trying to help them be independent individuals who are capable of rational thought and analysis, which seems to be devoid of these types of people who are uh, doing the victim Olympics. Yeah, let's have uh, positive hope for uh, the next generation, man, because this one, oof, oof, let me tell you. Um, I know the, the lefties, the Marxists, took over the college universities and are pumping out social Marxists. Marxists um, and, you know, there's been a lot of pushback online and um that's why a lot of the millennials you know complain and the lefties really complain that twitter is just the worst place ever when in reality it's a situation where they say something stupid and then they get slapped down by the truth and then they claim oppression and that it's just you know toxic and blah 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 but yeah you daniel's right i mean they, they only have the one perspective from which to view these movies they don't have any kind of historical context so all they're seeing is this, and you know, you look at the world through this culture lens of oppression where everybody has power. That word gets thrown around so much and it really annoys me because it's never defined. But, you know, one, well, if you're white and you're male, you have power. Could someone explain to me exactly how? Because <laughs> I don't appear to have a whole lot of power. But whatever. Apparently I do because of an accident of birth. Great. You're not total racist. Anyway, it's, it's really frustrating. I know we, we, need to, we need to wrap this up here. Yeah, we've been going about an hour, and uh, maybe we can do a little bit of the Kathleen Turner Overdrive, and that will be for our Patreon supporters. So if you want to get a piece of that action, including our pre-show stuff and some other bonuses, check us out at patreon.com slash readrothbard, and you can uh, get all those goodies, including access to the Rothbard Repository, which is a searchable database of Murray Rothbard lectures, where you can find every instance of where he discussed a certain topic from your keyword search. And it's a really fun research tool, especially if uh, you're getting in a, in a debate on Facebook and you want to like slap them with some some Rothbard. So check us out there. Uh, and you can also get the show notes for this episode at actualanarchy.com slash 62. And uh, I'll say uh, thank you for joining us and good night from me. Over to you, Robert. Well, it's been an honor and a privilege to speak with you tonight, Daniel. You're a sexy, sexy slut. And I just want to remind everybody to go to tpublic.com slash Trumpster. Check me out. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks for listening. Have a good night, everybody. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do